0: Hi, my name is Alex Johnson, and this is the Fintech Takes podcast, the place where I workshop new takes, talk with fintech friends, both old and new, and explore the less trodden spaces in our well-trodden industry. Yes, that's exactly the energy we're looking for. Um, As people who are listening to this podcast later may find out, we were recording this podcast live from Denver, Colorado, site of the Move FinTech DevCon Conference or um, FinTech Nerd Festival 2022, I think is what we're calling it. My name is Alex Johnson, and uh, we're very excited to uh, have some awesome guests for this podcast. Uh, Sitting on my left is Adam uh, Nayor. Did I get that right? All right. Awesome. Um, Before we go any further, we need to thank Adam and his company, Amazon Web Services, for sponsoring this event. Round of applause. Thank you. And on my right is the infamous Jason Henricks. Round of applause for Jason. What we're going to do for this event is... uh, workshop some takes. So my newsletter is called FinTech Takes. And the reason we called it FinTech Takes back in the day, I say we, it was me in my basement, is that uh, I wanted to try to have opinions on what was going on in FinTech. And the only way to do that was to force myself to have a newsletter that came out every other week. I called it fintech takes because while I wanted to have opinions, I actually wanted them to not be super hot takes. I wanted them to be relatively warm, well-considered takes and kind of the opposite of Stephen A. Smith, if you know who that is. And um, so when I was doing that, one of the things I realized is I needed time to sort of marinate on the ideas, think about what we were going to do and really let the takes kind of settle in for a bit. Most of the time, that happens in private. But what I thought we would do is sort of expose that process publicly and share some takes that the three of us all have that we're still sort of workshopping. Things that aren't quite ready for prime time, but that we're maybe comfortable sharing. Some of them will be hot takes. Uh, Jason, in particular, I know has a couple hot takes. Jason stores. has no
1: filter. Yes.
0: Yeah. This is Jason Unfiltered. If you've never seen it, it's quite something. So the plan is for us to just sort of bounce around a couple different takes that we each have kind of share some opinions on those, and we'll go until Sophia cuts us off. Sound like a plan? All right.
1: So, Jason, first topic is for you. Well, before we get into that, so I co-host the Breaking Banks podcast, and one of my 2022 New Year's resolutions was most content sucks, right? Like, So I do a lot of speaking. I do a lot of panels. We obviously do our podcasts. We reach over a million people a month. And I'm sick of bad content. So I'm like, you know what? 2022 is the year of I am going to fuck up content, right? So we launched FinTech Fight Club with MX last year. We're doing new things. And I had this idea with, you know, being an avid reader of Alex's. I'm like, do you want to be awesome if people have seen the Now We Feast uh, YouTube series? The famous actresses and actors that get on, and comedians are interviewed while eating hot wings. I'm like, do you want to be awesome? let's do a podcast for breaking banks with Alex. They'll be called hot wings and hot takes. And Alex was game. He's like, I love hot wings. And so when he asked me to do this, he was like, let's be spicy. But what Alex didn't realize is when we get spicy, we have to get really spicy. And so we have oh no. some hot sauce and some hot wings to go along with our hot takes oh no. to make things spicy. So, Alex, I'm going to give you your choice. You can have, just be warned, um, Hunter at the Bar gave Alex, Sam, and I a phenomenal shot known as vodka with hot sauce in it. So, if you hear my throat going in and out right now, that's what happened. If you see Sam fall over, that's what happened. The devil woman on the front should have been an indicator of what it tasted like. So, I I think you should take one of these two, and I'm going to give you a wing and I'm gonna kick off while you eat.
0: Okay, okay. Oh God, I'm not gonna be able to speak for my portion, so forgive me.
1: All right, so just so people know, this is my equal opportunity. I'm gonna offend all of you, hopefully, by the time we're done. And- If feels
0: left out, just shout.
1: Yeah, just shout if I have not offended you. And so here's my hot take. Banking as a service is bullshit. (laughs) And as Sam said, and I will add to this, he goes, "Just drop the two A's. Banking as a service is BS." And why do I say that? Let's start. It's like let's. And this is an equal opportunity offensive statement to everyone here. If you are a bank, I will offend you. If you are a middleware player, I will offend you. And if you are the fintech, I will probably offend you too. Let's start with the banks. This is one of my favorite things that. this used to be as part of my keynote like so i talk about disruption all the time and like how the world is changing the pressure not just from the big banks but from the fintechs and the commerce players and you need to evolve without fail so you get to the end of the talk and like there's people who come up there's some q and a there's always somebody in it, it is a white man in khaki pants hanging in the shadows who comes up at the end of it and goes i totally agree with you disruption's going to happen but we have a secret strategy. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, what's that? And they're like, FinTech. Then I'm like, FinTech is not a strategy. And why are we whispering? <laughs> right? And so I don't know if you've seen um, Finastra put out a survey a couple weeks ago, 85% of banks say that in the next 18 months, they're going to get into banking as a service, to which I wave the bullshit flag of one, you're not. Two, you don't know how you're going to do it. And you don't even understand what banking as a service means. But it is the promised land because they don't understand strategy. We can't all rush in as a bank and say, oh, we're going to get into Baz. And that's like the holy grail for us. Baz is something deeper. If you are a bank, you need to think through, how do I do it, why should I do it, and what am I going to do to differentiate? And I will also say, so we have about 30% market share of the banks that play in BAS as a member of Alloy Labs. We find all the time banks that have no business being the sponsor bank playing in that space, which leads me to the middleware players. Here's your problem. So if the first ones they have a strategy problem, the middleware players, you have a responsibility problem. Who knows the Spider-Man meme? Like everyone's pointing at everyone. So the banks that have no business getting into this business are reliant. And these are my friends. So like I'm sorry if and the units and you know like Cintas of the world. Like I love like what they're trying to do. But there's an over reliance, and right now regulators are letting them kind of run a little free and clear. But that's going to change in the not too distant future, which we'll get into in a second on the fintechs. Right, And so there's an over-responsibility on someone who is not actually the responsible party that you're going to see a massive compression on. So let's get to the fintech so I can offend them quickly and move on to the next party is you have a business model problem. you know. So man, woman, or whoever you identify cannot live on interchange alone, but that's how most of them are set up. And it's even worse when you have that middleware player in the middle of it because there's too many mouths to feed. And interchange isn't enough. And guess what? Interchange is about to go through massive compression, not just from regulation, but the fact that how often do you check out and you see Amazon Pay is there? And I think that's a direct result. If you go back to when Dodd-Frank was passed, I was at MasterCard, World Congress, the head of regulatory affairs stood up and goes, I'm sorry, we have failed you. The merchant lobby was too strong and they were able to compress interchange. And it was the actual... I think it was Walmart's head of um, regulatory stood up and goes, uh, excuse me, we're here. You're supposed to represent us too. And you can say, well, but nothing changed. No, it has changed. Look at all of the alternative payment networks that are out there now. So interchange is going to compress. Your business model, this is Jason's religion when it comes to neobanks, the ratio of lifetime value to cost of acquisition You need to figure out, and this is, if you heard the diversity talk today, you need to be more than affinity. You need to figure out how do I either raise that LTV or massively drop that cost of acquisition. And for all of the neobanks out there that go, oh, our cost of acquisition is practically zero. I call bullshit. If you do KYC, if you send cards, if you have a marketing department and if you bought a Super Bowl ad, your cost of acquisition is not zero. I'll quit now. I didn't see you eat anything spicy. You're not crying yet.
0: This is incredibly spicy. That was the first thing I was going to say is the extra hot pepper sauce. Very, very spicy. Second of all, this is why I asked him to go first. So round of applause for Jason. That was a hell of a take. (laughs) The only thing I would add to that is that I do think that to your point, I've sort of thought about the bass space, thinking kind of slightly longer term as really having kind of a supply and demand problem, right? And so right now, I think we're in the phase of banks, to your point, going, wow, banking as a service, this seems great. And you know, you look at like the the, um, profitability metrics for banks that have been in banking as a service for a while and they like break the dial, right, compared to most banks. So I get why it's really, really attractive, but you have a ton of banks that are rushing into the space And they're like, we're going to do Bass. And you're like, well, that sounds great. I love Bass. They're like, well, what do you think we should do? It's like, well, I probably wouldn't do debit cards and checking accounts because that's kind of taken. But honestly, like you have to go figure that out. You can't just enter Bass and think, well, you know, Bass is our strategy. People will find us. You have to have a customer acquisition strategy. You have to have a technology strategy. You have to have a compliance strategy. Like it's an entirely new business that you have to build that's
1: completely different than the business you've been in. Completely different, requires different skill set. If you're going to get into it, you need to actually bring in, I would say you need new compliance AML, BSA people. Yeah, because
0: the ones ones you have don't like to do a ton of work. And like Bass is a ton
1: of work, right? A ton of work and you can't offload it. This is to the point too. I love the players in the space, but you can't offload. Right. You know, to someone else and go, it'll all be fine. It's right. not going to be fine.
0: Right. No, one, you you see that happening right now. And this is the, the other thing that's affecting the sort of supply and demand uh, calculation at the moment is regulators are noticing bass. Right. And talking about bass and putting scrutiny on bass. And it's not going to slow down. Right. It's going to accelerate. And I feel like this sort of slowdown we're seeing right now, there's going to be a lot more fallout to come around you know, hey, what is your Bass arrangement? How many, you know, if it's a regulator talking to a bank, how many of these fintechs that have come to you have
1: you turned down? And can you show us which ones you've turned down? Can I build on that for a second? Please. So, recently spoke to a bank and we were talking about it's They brought up, they have 50 fintech partners that they are the issuing bank for. Whoa. And so not unsizable, right? Big, right? Yeah. Right. And they don't actually track any of the complaints that get filed on the bats. So they're like, well, that's not our responsibility because we partner with Axe. So it's like, no, 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 the regulator is going to come to you and say that is your responsibility. It's like a terrible answer for right. regulators, just yeah. a terrible answer. Well, and is one of our banks is fond of saying at some point, somebody's going to pee in the pool and we're all going to get wet. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think we have to leave that one there. That's perfect. So, um, <laughs> we'll we'll we'll
0: stop on bass for the moment. Jason has obviously many more opinions, so find him after we're done recording. Um, second one, I'll do this one is um my rant. I'll call it a rant. Um, tech people need to stop building for tech people. That's my rant. Thank you. Um one person agrees. So, um Here's how I've come to think about this, and it's it's based on a piece I just wrote on the personal financial management space, right? PFM's been around forever, and if you look at all of the consumer surveys that have ever been done around adoption of PFM, one thing you'll notice that's really weird is that the total number of people that adopt any PFM solution, it tops out at about 15 to 20% of the target population. It's always 15 to 20%. Why? That's weird, like why would that be? We've been working on PFM for 15, 20 years. Why why is it keep topping out at 15%? It's because we keep building PFM apps that FinTech founders want, not PFM apps that the rest of the 85% of the general population It's the same thing with productivity apps, right? When you're in Silicon Valley, productivity apps are the best thing ever and there's always a new one and everyone's always rushing to the new one and trying it. Everyone in technology is an early adopter of technology. They love fiddling with technology. They love going in and adjusting the budget categories and doing all of that. And of course I'll pay $10 a month. That's not a big deal. Like that is a bad target market and it's bad because it's so good, right? You build this new PFM app, people rush into the space and you're like, wow, we've gotten to product market fit. Everyone loves our product. They're willing to pay money. Look at how they rave about us when they do reviews. And then they try to cross the chasm and get to the other 85%, and it doesn't happen. It didn't happen with Mint.com. And looking at the next generation of PFM apps, the ones that are trying to replicate that same approach, but with a prettier UI, same problem. It's not going to happen. The other rant related to this that's gonna get me in trouble with people who are fans of modern technology, I use Microsoft Outlook for my email client. I tried, I want you to know I tried. I really did try. When did Superman to work? I, I was gonna use Superhuman. I was like so excited to use Superhuman. I saw that it was out there. I saw that some folks at my company were like allowing us to pay the price to use Superhuman. I was like, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna try it. The onboarding was wonderful, it was white glove. And when I was being onboarded into Superhuman, The person asked me, are you an inbox zero person? And I'm like, no, because my inbox is the opposite of inbox zero, it's inbox infinity. And I have an organizational system for my inbox infinity approach, it works for me. And she's like, well, have you ever thought about being an inbox zero person? I'm like, no. And she's like, well, I think it might work for you. And what she was actually saying was, you will not like this product if you are not an inbox zero person. (laughs) And I've noticed this in the PFM space, and I've noticed this now with Superhuman, a lot of these products are not only built for a specific person, but they are built around a philosophy, right? Again, use PFM as an example. You Need a Budget is a great app, but it is built around a philosophy, right? It is a zero-based budget philosophy. And if you adhere to that philosophy, if you are a part of that religion, it's the best app ever. If you're not, it is not going to work for you, and it's going to scare you very deeply. So- my plea to everyone.: who... And lead to marriage counseling, yes. just <laughs> That's right. Um, please, 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 please. When you're building products and you're looking at how we can democratize access to financial services and we can solve for underbanked and underserved consumers, whenever there's like a choice that you have to make for a product like, do we do A or do we do B? And your instinct is A, choose B.
1: Choose B every single time.: Jason, I know you have thoughts on this. I mean, the budgeting part of it is resonates very deeply. When we did a lot of surveys in my Perk Street days, right? So we were one of the first challenger banks. And what we were going after is how do you bring high rewards to a debit card and reward people who want to spend responsibly? 89% of our users espoused, I budget. I want to budget. I want to spend responsibly. Yep. We then look at their behavior, 14%. Right? The difference 15%. Sp- that's the number right there. A spouse versus enacted behavior. And I'll also tell you, right? I work in finance. I work in you know personal finance, responsible finance. I suck at budgeting. Yeah, and there's no joke when I say it's like the leads to marriage counseling. Having the, like, we need to get on a budgeting <laughs> app, honey. Yeah, that doesn't go well. If somebody <laughs> wants to actually go solve a problem that's real, build a budgeting app with built in marital counseling. <laughs> Boom. You heard it here first.
0: Free product idea
1: right um, there. But I think part of the challenge here is the problems we see both as tech people, as bankers, as fintechers, we think about it from our perspective and it's because we're informed and our consumers are coming from a very different perspective. And I often talk about this concept now called the edge of money. Being in fintech, we're used to being at the center of money, money coming in, tracking money, making loans, money going out. Money is a means to an end for everyone else, right? It is part of a story arc. And we often don't take the time to get into the story arc and understand the context of what does that money mean, right? Like you don't wake up one day and go, you know, other than a fintech or a banker, go, I really want to go get a new mortgage because, you know, I had my proctology exam last year. I haven't done anything (laughs) yet this year. So let's go collect all my statements over a period of three months right where it's really painful. No, it's a story arc called, I got married, we're having kids, we're relocating, the kids have left, I'm retiring. There is a story arc. There's a reason that Rocket Mortgage, even though I was speaking at the FDIC's first FinTech conference and it was academics and I was supposed to be the industry pundit, and they're like, we did this research, it was amazing. We don't understand, but people who use Rocket Mortgage are willing to pay 35 basis points more for their mortgage. And everyone's like, that's amazing. Why would they do that? People are so irrational. (laughs) Hey, rocket mortgage user. You know why? Do you know what problem I was solving for? We moved into my parents' basement right before COVID when we went to the Twin Cities. It took us 16 months to find a house. Like, pre-approval had lapsed. The problem Jason was solving for was called don't get divorced. I needed a mortgage. I needed it now. And it was worth 35 basis points. I'm so
0: glad that you keep
1: bringing up, like, don't get divorced because
0: honestly, and it's a funny point, but it brings up something real, which is, and I, I wrote about this in my newsletter, but I, I wish I'd expanded on it even more, money adjacent problems are the important problems, right? Like and relationships are a great example you fight because of money, right? And so my problem isn't a money problem. My problem is I'm fighting with my significant other or my friend or you know my kids who are now asking for toys every time I come back from a trip. And that's like the core problem, right? And so I think the advantage that we have in fintech is you can't solve that with a checking account or a savings account or a credit card. Better UI. Yeah, not a better UI, that's not gonna solve it. But you can create software that addresses that problem that incorporates money, right? Money is a piece of the problem. It's a enabler to solving the larger problem that can be solved with software. It can't be solved solely with financial services. And I think the more we get into those edge money problems, I love that way of thinking about it, that's the right way to go. All right. We're going to let Adam do one. Um, he is the, uh, responsible one on our
1: panel. So we're going to let him take also said, please don't give me a spicy wing. Yeah, yeah. No spicy
2: wings. My hot takes aren't that hot. I was just actually, uh, sitting here realizing, I just get a lot of life advice from you too. It's going to mitigate future problems that I have with the significant other that I don't have with the money that I don't have (laughs) I can sort of plan ahead. So if anyone is in that boat and wants to hang out later, I'll be around. Um, (laughs) I started a neobank, and now I work on fintech business development at AWS. And had I thought more carefully about the ratio between CAC to LTV or how to acquire users the right way, um, my life would have been easier. So Jason, I wish you had entered my life a few years ago. Um, One thing that we're seeing in fintech that's really interesting right now is, and this is sort of not a a hot take, it's it's, it's a vanilla perspective, is fintechs are coming to Amazon and probably other cloud vendors and saying, help us work with financial institutions at scale. And financial institutions are coming to cloud vendors and saying, hey, here are a bunch of problems that we have. And they're describing solutions as opposed to technology debt or technological problems. And they're thinking about how to acquire users for their consumer banking products. They're thinking about how to do KYC or KYB more thoughtfully. And there really uh, seems to be a new appetite to describe challenges in FinTech, not as products, not as software limitations, but as actually narratives or solutions that they're looking for to to complete broader workflows within within banks. So that's something we spend a lot of time on and that was really as spicy as I wanted to get it, was to describe yes. something that I work on in my
1: free time. Let's and, give them uh, a big round of applause. Yeah, that was a good that. one, that
0: was really
2: no.
1: Until that, that was approved for... by corporate. <laughs> what was that? That was approved by corporate, you're allowed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, let me give my spicy version of this that we get quite a bit with Alloy Labs, not to be confused with Alloy, the identity company, although we're good friends, right, Tommy? Um, <laughs> good to see you, Tommy. Thank you, God guys for (laughs) rebranding. Our colors were exactly the same for about a a year. Um, So we'll have FIs come to us and say, tell us which vendor to use. And our question back is, what problem are you trying to solve? And they're like, small business lending. There's no problem called small business lending. There's a problem called, I'm trying to be more efficient in like how I manage it, I need a digital workflow. I'm trying to go into new segments. I'm trying to expand out of my footprint. Like those are problem statements that you can go after and solve for, but there's no problem statement that just says, show me the vendor and the job is done. The hard work is actually done before Define the problem, then find the partner. And honestly, no offense to most people here is, like your competitors are also pretty good. There's like two or three of you in every category. Just pick one that aligns with your values right? That you feel like you can work with really as a partner versus a vendor. And then the really hard work is now that I have it, how do I actually go use that hammer to create value? And most people in institutions that are traditional banking treat it like a core conversion, which is, you know, we do this really long project. We get to the core conversion date. We have a really bad weekend. We clean up for two weeks. We go, thank God that project's done. That's not how innovation works. That's not how value creation works is the hard work is actually when I have the partner in hand, including your cloud partner, right? Including the partners your cloud partner brings to you because now that you're in the cloud and you have APIs and stuff, you're not like, hey, we moved to the cloud, job is done. It's like, no, now you have the cloud. What are you going to do with it?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think one thing that's really interesting about the more banks and fintech companies going to AWS or going to other cloud providers is there's kind of a matchmaking problem in the industry and I think sometimes it gets overlapped with other things right like we were talking about bass before a big value that bass platforms provide is they provide matchmaking right like separate from the technology separate from facilitating you know access to a bank charter they just provide matchmaking and a lot of the best ones are hey what's your problem what are your values how do we align that and then getting you connected to the right partners and I do think it's interesting that one of the consequences, I think, of all this fintech infrastructure being built and all these sort of fintech partnerships that are possible with banks is that there's going to be a lot more of a need for good advice and matchmaking in the industry that goes well beyond your standard RFP processes, always sent to the same vendors. Like, I think the banks that are getting ahead are the ones that are looking in other places for advice on who to partner with and where to go for value creation. Because you go back to the same well over and over and over again, you get roughly the same results.
1: Well, I have to say this because Alex is in the audience. My longest running trope and most popular is the fintech petting zoo. So I am the product of a central Illinois farm, right? And so this is what I like to bring up is people get caught into this. I'm going to show up, not as much DevCon because these are hardcore developers, but you go to Finnovator, Money2020, And you're like, oh, let's go look at the startups, pat them on the head, they're like, oh my God, thank God we are so innovative, let's go back, we're done. If you go to the FinTech petting zoo, it doesn't make you a farmer. That requires a lot of hard work of tilling the soil, of planting seeds, some things are gonna work out, some are not, but the harvest only comes from putting in the work to get it done. Going to the petting zoo does not solve your problem.
0: Amen. Yeah. I think that's, we'll leave that one there. Um, all right, we're going to do two more and then we'll wrap up and we'll just have fun for a little while. Jason, I'm going to give you the next one. Um, I think you have another, is it a rant? can be a rant,
1: but first I'm going to say the hot sauce with the devil woman just to like cue me up for this. We're going to see how this goes. Is this the green one? Okay. Jason, when
2: you, when you were speaking, uh,
1: (laughs) mother. Wow. All right, I'm
0: ready. Prepare yourselves.
1: I'm <laughs> All right. FinTech is not less regulated, right? So, first, banks and traditional FIs in the room, you're a bunch of whiners. You just keep going. It's like, it's unfair. The fintechs can do whatever they want. No one comes down on them. And the fintechs are like, well, we're going to pursue this Uber strategy, which is once we reach scale, you know, the regulators will, like, deal with us. And who's familiar, because I don't want to go over this if people are familiar, the whole digit CFPB thing right now. I, let's do it since podcasts can't hear and I need to take a drink of beer. Um <coughs> Cheer if, did the CFPB overreact in the fine that they gave Digit for their algorithm? Yes. Yes. Who thinks that they got just dues for what they did? Yeah. All right. So here's my take on it. And I never thought in my wildest dreams I'd be defending the CFPB on this. Yeah. But... (laughs) I also descend, yeah, defended, a popular defended I defended Zell recently too. I'm like what's what what's become of? me? <laughs> um, so here's the hot take is fintechs are not less regulated. In fact, they should be more regulated. The problem is we've been lax in the interstitials between the regulator regulates, the bank the bank regulates them and this is what I think went wrong with Digit. Is I love Digit. I love what they're trying to accomplish. The fact is they had 70,000 complaints about their algorithm moving money that caused an overdraft. I don't know about, so I am actually an engineer by training, I'm not a very good engineer, but I can tell you if I got 70,000 complaints, I could tell you the thing I built was not working properly, right? And what should have happened is Digit should have gone to their bank and to the regulator, and the bank should have noticed at this point and said, hey, something's not working, 70,000 complaints? That's kind of a a thing, right? Like maybe we should go check if the algorithm is working, right? Yep. And so this regulatory, and I think this goes back to the VAS model, is we need to take a proactive stance to regulation, right? So I am not pro-regulation, but I am pro-preactive, proactive regulation. The problem in a lot of regulation right now is what I like to call monumental regulation, So think about all the monuments you've seen. It's normally because something really, really bad happened. Then they take a really long time and they build a really big monolithic thing and then no one ever visits it again except the pigeons. And that's what our regulatory system looks like, which is let's wait for a really long time, something really bad happens because the old regulations aren't caught up with the modern world. Then we overreact to it, Dodd-Frank. And what happens is then we implement it for so long that by the, like, oh my God, we finally got Dodd-Frank implemented. And then it's like, oh my God, the world has kept moving. Who knew that over the next five to seven years that Dodd Frank was, you know, being implemented, the world kept innovating and doing new things. And now we're like, we have to catch up again. Right. And so we do this, you, you know, Newton's like equal and opposite reaction. We're going, we and we need to get to the stance. That the fintechs have guidelines, the banks have guidelines, and they're guardrails for the future that we say, hey, this is what we think is going to work. And if it doesn't, let's revisit it. But we're going to do and redo as opposed to let's wait and see what happens. And, oh, that was bad. Consequences.
0: I agree. I I think my take on the digit situation as sort of an example of something larger perhaps in the industry that we need to wrestle with is – the argument I think that was made, and Opportune actually put out a statement sort of to this effect was that, well, over the question, the period in time, we had basically four nines of not screwing up time, was kind of the argument. And um, I am putting it a little more glibly than they did for obvious reasons, but that was the argument and it's interesting. And I I can see where it comes from, right? Because like, it was a relatively small number. I'm a huge fan of Digit. I love their product. I've been a paying customer. It's never screwed up for me for what it's worth. But I think that the thing that gets missed is that banking and sort of the traditional financial services industry is so used to regulation and has such kind of thick skins about it that we apply a very sort of unequal standard about these things. Because one of the things that kind of came out of the whole Digit thing was people felt like the CFPB was basically being mean to Digit, right? It's like, this is really harsh language. This is kind of being unfair. It's like, have you met this CFPB? This is what they do to everyone. Like, go back and look at some of the press releases they wrote about the credit bureaus, about banks that have gotten in trouble, about specialty lenders have gotten in trouble. They don't pull punches with anybody. And yeah, you can argue that that's a bad approach to regulation, they're regulating by blog post. I'm sympathetic to those arguments, but I think a big thing that we need to wrestle with in FinTech is we deal with people's money four nines of uptime is not sufficient. You have to get to five nines, you have to get to six nines. This is an important thing. When Equifax screws up and sends the wrong credit scores for three months for 300,000 people, the material affects their scores, we rake them over the coals, rightfully so. Everyone needs to be held to that standard. So that was kind of my reaction to that.
1: Well, in you know our team, and credit to Samer Saab, who's our SVP of product at Alloy Labs, we talk about, we have different incentives. And from the startup point of view, It's a Maslow hierarchy of need, which is, I need to go find product market fit in the ability to fund the startup to the next stage. So it's kind of like, oh yeah, if it's not working, I'll deal with that later because I either go big or it blows up. Right. That's not my
0: biggest problem right now. Yeah,
1: not my biggest problem. The bank is the opposite, which is. Everything is my biggest problem. Everything's my biggest problem, but serving my customers better is not my biggest problem. <laughs> it's not getting in trouble is my biggest problem. Right. Right. And so I don't do new things. And the problem is this foes like pushes to rogue innovation. Right. So who actually go- goes and does the innovation It is either institutions that aren't regulated and are like, "Eh, we'll figure it out later if it works. Or it's the institution is like, eh, what could possibly go wrong, right? Like, Baz, it's going to be awesome. We can take on 50 banks without, you know, or 50 fintechs without thinking about it. Yep. And it'll all work out.
0: Yep, absolutely. I would
1: also, as a closing statement, I'm going to put these hot sauces over there. Do not take the devil woman one. (laughs) Holy Hannah. (laughs) Jason, when you were talking...
2: There was some wincing going on for people <laughs> that had had that already. So <laughs> sympathy. Other
1: people
0: are sweating as well. Sympathy for the devil. Um, all right. So I'm gonna do one more and then we'll we'll wrap up. My final take, rant, wanna workshop this a little bit. It's not the most original title. Lending is hard. Lending isn't hard. Getting paid back is hard. That's the trick, right? So this, thank you for thank you for finishing the other half of the joke. That's the challenge, right? So The reason I bring this up is we are at a point, I believe, where suddenly everyone in fintech is going to become interested in lending. Those who haven't been doing lending will get into lending because it's a great way to make money. It is the only way in a lot of cases in retail banking to make money. So everyone's going to get into it. They're going to discover lending. This is going to be great. And I've seen this play a couple of times before. And the way it typically goes is, well, we're going to get into lending. We feel really good about the quality of our portfolio. And we feel really good about the algorithm that we've built to do lending. But we have AI. A, mo- a moment of silence for, for that statement. And I, I have to tell those people that it's just not the way it works. I'm sure you have a clever AI. I'm sure you have good machine learning. I'm sure that you have a really smart underwriting algorithm. But lending fundamentally is a learning business. And everyone who starts in it goes through the same exact thing, which is they try things, they see how the initial cohorts perform, they take their lumps, they adjust. Sometimes your timing is good from a credit cycle perspective. Sometimes your timing is horrible from a credit cycle perspective. But no one, regardless of what cycle they start in, masters lending day one. It's a learning business. And the thing that concerns me about fintech companies getting into lending is I don't think we've been preparing the right way. And I'll cite two examples, which I've recently written about in my newsletter. One is credit builder products. I love credit builder products. I think they're fantastic. I think they address a critical need that young consumers, immigrants, uh, consumers that have been serving in the military, lots of different groups that are credit invisible have, that banks have been very negligent in trying to solve. The problem though, is that some credit builder products essentially hack into the credit bureaus, right? By allowing for consumers to make payments, but not really giving them the ability to default, right? It's kind of the uh, bike wearing the training wheels Uh, analogy, right? You're not ever really going to fall because there's never really an option to fall. Well, guess what? That doesn't give you a good indication of who's actually willing to repay you. It doesn't. It helps those consumers build their credit scores. It doesn't tell you who's actually going to perform well because the 680 that you have in your portfolio may not actually perform like a 680. Maybe they will, or maybe they won't. You really don't know. So we have that problem. And then the other problem we have is buy now, pay later. And again, I like Buy Now, Pay Later. I think Buy Now, Pay Later has been a net positive for the industry. Disagree. Okay, well, we'll arm wrestle about that later, and I will lose, probably. Um, But I do think that Buy Now, Pay Later, one of the biggest challenges with it is it's giving us a false sense of security about our capabilities as it comes to lending. Now, this isn't true for all of them, right? I'm speaking specifically about pay in four buy now, pay laters, where it's a six weeks loan term, it's usually $250, $300 at most, and it gets split into four payments, the first of which gets made immediately when you're checking out. That is not how loan products work, right? That is not in any way a traditional loan product. And how those consumers perform is relevant only to the profitability of your buy now, pay later business. It has no bearing on how those consumers are gonna perform in other credit products. Other buy now, pay later providers like a firm that do more point of sale lending that's bigger amounts, longer terms, they actually look at credit bureaus and credit files because that data is actually useful, believe it or not. That's a different story, but for anyone that's cutting their teeth in lending for fintech and starting in in pay-in-for-buy-now-pay-later or credit builder products, you have a lot of learning to do.
1: I'm going to let it go. Alex and I will be arm wrestling over there when I can speak again.
2: (coughs) Adam, anything to add to that one? I have a lot of thoughts on BNPL actually. This is where my hottest hot takes are. But yes, we're, we're, yes. At, we're at time. But you know, a lot of oh, these. And now we're at time. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've been getting the signal. Um, all right, all right. Well, I'll, I'll say this. One of the really interesting things about BNPL is you know, a firm is publicly traded. You can read their 10Ks and look at the role of data for how they're thinking about underwriting risk. I think that's really interesting. Yep. I think one thing you didn't mention, which I think is worth thinking about is BNPLs for physical assets versus BNPL for experiences. If there's you know, something, a large percentage of a firm's revenue comes from the sale of Peloton bicycles, for example. The notion that if someone defaults on a payment, you can go get that physical device back versus BNPL for travel, where once they get on that flight, it's done. I think there's, there's some more nuances here. But one of the most interesting things that I'm seeing in BNPL is the fragmentation, the very, very very narrow application of BNPL to specific things in people's lives. So, BNPL to go to the dentist. BNPL to go to the cardiologist. BNPL to travel to South America. I think that's really interesting. How can you build good underwriting models when you have such a specific niche of users? I think we'll see a lot of innovation in that space and um, I'm excited for it.
0: I have 27 buy now, pay later loans right now, so. um, And that's my problem that I'm gonna shut up because it's bad for the
1: consumer. You don't know what you
0: owe. All right, we're gonna leave it there. Twenty-seven. I if. I what love are you borrowing money for? I want
2: to hear the hot. What's number one on your? What's well, the biggest loan?
0: I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what it is. It's hot sauce. That's exactly what it is. Now that uh, now that we've demonstrated that. Jason's is an acid. I yeah. will find out pay later <laughs> for an acid. All right. I want to thank Adam and Jason for joining me. Adam, thank, thank you. you for sponsoring this. Thanks so much. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fintech Takes. If you want to hear even more insights into the past, present, and future of fintech, be sure to check out The Fintech Factor, the podcast series where I try to figure out how fintech companies can build sustainable differentiation in this golden age of fintech infrastructure.